As we uh, shared earlier this morning at the Community Sunrise Service, for years on Easter morning, on Resurrection Day, the church would gather and they would come before the church, the ministers, and they would repeat this statement, Christ is risen. And the church would respond, Christ is risen indeed. So why don't we say that together? Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed. Amen. Amen. This morning, we're going to be continuing. Last week, we were in Romans 5. We're going to be picking up there today in Romans 6. I don't know if you have ever seen J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Maybe you've read the series, The Hobbit, others. I encourage you, if you haven't, it's a great, again, read if you're a reader, but at least catch the movies. But in the midst of it, he's talking about this ring, right, that begins to destroy the people that, that look to it, that desire it. In fact, Pastor Tim Chalice writes this. Tolkien's ring is such a powerful illustration of sin. From the moment a person puts that ring on his finger, the ring is out to dominate and destroy him. The ring has a mind of its own, a mind that is bent on destruction. The ring will be satisfied only when it is ensured ensured that the ring bearer is overcome, overwhelmed, and destroyed. All of its promises merely lead to a greater kind of enslavement that leads toward death. Paul says that in Romans chapter 5, right, and we're going to pick up in Romans 6 today, but in Romans 5, he says, guess what? The same is true for all of us, that we have been passed on that ring from our forefathers. He says it went back to Adam and Eve in the garden, and since that time, your forebears have passed it on to you, and guess what? You're going to pass it on to those who come behind you. It is this ring of sin, this desire for sin and enslavement to the things and desires of this world. And so the question comes, who can rescue us from this? Well, the world will tell you, guess what? The way to get past the ring is just try harder, do better. Come on, get it together already. Others will just tell you, hey, guess what? The ring actually isn't that big of a deal. It's okay, just do you. But the Bible confronts us with the issue that the ring represents, our sin. And it says the very things we've been singing and the scriptures you've been hearing this morning, is that there's one that actually came who resisted the power of the ring. And he went to the cross, bearing not his own sin, but the sin of the ring bearers, that we might be restored to right relationship with God. That's the hope that we have in the midst of Christ's death and resurrection. My guess is that some of you this morning, you come to this day and you say, you know what, Blake, my issue necessarily isn't believing about the resurrection. I'm, I'm on the same page with you there. But if I was honest, I don't really feel like I live in the power of the resurrection when it comes to my daily life. Like when it comes to confronting sin and that desire to put on that ring, the desire to give in to those sinful desires and temptations, I'm not seeing much victory. And the day's text here in Romans 6 tells us that since Jesus rose from the dead and conquered sin, that we can also have victory over our sin. It's the power of Christ in us. But as we come to this text today, I want you to know that there's good news And also bad news. Let's begin with the bad news. Our first truth. The resurrection confronts us in our sin. The resurrection, it confronts us in our sin. Listen to what Paul says as he writes to the church in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 20 and 21. Now the law came in to now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Paul writes to the church at Rome, and I don't know if you know much about this day and time or studied history, but Rome, right, it, it, it ruled much of the known world at that day and time. But it was also a wicked place. Paul talks to the Romans in Romans chapter 1. He says, listen, God's revealed himself through creation. And he's shown who he is. But the truth is, he says, people, instead of worshiping God, they've suppressed the truth. And they begin to worship themselves rather than the Creator. Sounds a lot like us today, doesn't it? And so listen to what Paul says here. He says, well, listen, the truth is the law came, in verse 20 of Romans 5, to increase the trespass. Now, you may be thinking, well, what's, what's trespass? Maybe you think about this idea of trespassing, right? It, there's a sense in which there's boundary markers. There's, there's limits upon which you should not cross. And trespassing is when you step over those limits, right, and cross over into the place that you don't belong. But the Bible is clear that our trespassing is more serious than we think. It's not like we just accidentally ended up there. It's not like we accidentally just put on the ring. The Bible says to us, is everything all right? Okay. Thanks, man. Um, listen, the Bible says there's a boundary. This law of trespassing, of God's word, of God's truth. And it says that we've intentionally decided to step over that. That we've intentionally heard what God said. We've seen the truth, Romans 1 says, and we're suppressing it. We're saying, I, I don't want to hear that. I don't desire that. I don't long for that. It's like maybe you've seen a toddler, right? I mean, you tell a toddler, don't touch that. And they give you that look, don't they? And then what do they do? They touch it, don't they? Isn't it amazing in many ways how we're still like toddlers? That God tells us His truth, and yet we hear it and know it, and yet we still want to touch it. We still desire it. And Paul says further about this sin. He says in verse 21 of Romans 5, So that, he said, as sin reigned in death. Sin reigns in death. Sin reigns over us. It's ruling us. As Paul's going to say in a moment in Romans 6, it's enslaving us to the things of the world. And where does it lead to? Notice what he says. Death. Death. And this isn't just physical death because look what he says. The counter to this is grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life. This isn't just simple physical death like, man, you, you die and your life's over and that's it. You're in the grave. and There's nothing more. No. Just as there's eternal life to come for those who look to Christ and reign with him there's also eternal death, eternal separation from God forever in the place the Bible calls hell. And listen, guys, the truth is it's not that we just occasionally mess up. Listen to what Paul says further in verse 1 and 2 of Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Paul says, listen, there's a continuation of sin. This is who we are apart from the saving work of God. That we are those who not just occasionally sin, but we continue to sin. We, in fact, he says, we live in it. The truth is, we cherish the ring of sin. We may hide it from others when we come to church or out in the community, but deep down, that desire for sin rules all of us who are apart from Christ. That's our, that's our situation. And maybe you hear this and you say, you know what, Blake, that, that's, that, that's truth for you, but not for me. In fact, 2018 LifeWay study, they found that 60% of Americans agreed with this statement. Maybe this is true for you. Religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It's not about objective truth. 
Hear that again. Religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. Like, that's true for you, but not true for me. There is no absolute truth, in other words. And guess what the study found? That 50% of regular church growers, goers agreed with that statement. So what about you? When you hear the truth of God's Word, that you've intentionally rebelled against God, that this is our life, that we are living in sin, that we are continuing in sin, does that feel like the truth to you? Or just maybe something the church believes. So maybe you ought to ask yourself this morning as we come to Easter and the resurrection. Then why did Christ come? If our sin really isn't that big a deal, if we're really not enslaved to it, if we could really get out of jail free on our own, then why did Christ come? Why would God have sent his only begotten son? Right, as Paul will say to the church at Galatia, if, if righteousness could be obtained by being a good enough person, then Christ died for nothing. If you could escape sin on your own this morning, then Christ, God, was foolish to send His only begotten to die in our place. But the truth is, Christ's death and resurrection confronts you and I in our sin. And the question is, what will you do? How will you escape? As Adam prayed earlier in Colossians there, the judgment of God that is coming because of this. And that's where the resurrection begins to lead us into this glorious hope. The resurrection offers us newness of life. Newness of life. Listen to what happens. In light of the fact of who who we are, who we once were, listen to this hope today. Listen to this truth. Do you not know? That all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism in or, into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's a sobering reality. That the way out of our current sin-filled lives, Paul doesn't say be a better person. He doesn't say go to church more or stop cussing. He doesn't say give more to charity or memorize a few Bible verses already. Paul says the way out of the sin-filled life, listen to it again, it's through death. It's through death. It's, It's dying to ourselves. It's coming to be united with Christ in His death. You see, baptism is a picture of the way into the family of God. When someone comes to the waters of baptism, Paul says, as you see them going down the water, it's as if they're being buried. That there's a declaration of, I'm I'm dying to my old way of life. This sin-ruled life, this is no longer who I'm desiring to be. God is doing a work, but I couldn't rescue myself. Right? There's a sign of, of, right? There's there's an imagery there that's important. People don't baptize themselves. There's a sense in which they're they're humbling themselves. That they're laying back in that grave, being laid back as if a person's died, right? Who has no power to bury themselves. There's a sense in which we're dying to ourselves. We're admitting our, our weakness and our inability to overcome. But just as that power of Christ was raised from the dead, Paul says, guess what? We too, we too, as we come up out of that water, the imagery is we too have been raised. We too have now come to walk in the newness of life. That's the hope of the gospel. You might hear this and push back, but Paul is clear. Notice what he says again. In verse 4, there's no life without death. He says there in verse 4, he says, We were buried in order that we might walk in the newness of life. The path to life isn't be the best you. The path to life is come and die. 
to come and to receive what Christ has done on your behalf. There's no escaping that. Guys, this is an invitation to come and join with Christ in His humiliation. Right? Who wants to be with... That's, that's the Jewish leaders. They're struggling to see this one on the cross. Why? Because Deuteronomy has made it clear that everyone who is hung on the tree is under a curse. Cursed is everyone hung on a tree. Who wants to be acknowledged or identified with that one? The call to come to Christ is an identification or acknowledgement of our sinful rebellion and inability to make our way to God. Consider the words of the song, The Wonderful Cross. The words go like this in one of the verses. Oh, the wonderful cross. Oh, the wonderful cross. Bids me come and what? Die. And find that I, guess what? May truly live. Oh, the wonderful cross. Oh, the wonderful cross. All who gather are here by grace draw near and bless your name. Did you hear it? The cross bids us to come and die. And what's the result of that? He says, and find that we may truly live. Life through death. I mean, that's what we're experiencing right now, isn't it? As spring begins to come, you're beginning to see that what appeared once dead is now coming to life. But how do you come? Did you hear it again, that last verse? All who gather here, by what draw near? How do we draw near? By grace. By grace. I don't know if you heard it back when we began today, but Romans 5 and 20 said this, Now the law came to increase the trespass. The law shows, it exposes our sin, our inability to honor God. But listen to this glorious truth today. But where sin increased, grace abounded, what church? All the more. Hear that fresh and new for your soul this morning. I don't know where you've been, what you've done. I don't know how long it's been since you've been here or you've been right with God. I don't hear the word of God this morning. No matter where you've been or what you've done. Despite how high the mountain of your sin may appear, God's grace triumphs all the more. Is that not glorious good news? What hope? That's like a man. That's like a, a just a kiss and embrace from those that we love. All who come and die he says, "Listen, they're no longer ruled by this sin. They're walking in this newness of life." But maybe you ask, Blake, how in the world could we ever be certain of this? So the resurrection, it offers us, again, not only a newness of life, but listen, the resurrection offers us a relationship with God. That's what Paul says. This, these are some of the more powerful words in the entire New Testament. Verse 5, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. There's been this unity that's happening in a way that we can't even begin to understand that we have become in union with Christ, that just as a man and a woman come and they make those vows for better or for worse, richer or poor, and sickness and death, right, to honor and to cling only to one another, denying all others. There's some sense in which Paul says that, Ephesians 5, that marriage points to a greater union, and it speaks of Christ and the church. There's a sense in which you and I, listen, we in the midst of our trespassing and rebellion have been united with the pure and holy Son of God. work of God. It's by grace, friend. It's the extravagant love of God. And what happens as a result of this union? Notice what Paul says in verse 6 and 7. We know that our old self was crucified with Him 
in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer, listen to this, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. The result of this, of coming to Christ, look what he says, that our old self was crucified with him. The old self is that which we inherited from Adam. It's, it's ruled by sin. It, it craves and desires the ring, the desires of this world, our sinful flesh. But in coming to Christ, look what happens. We come and we are, die, we are crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Brought to nothing. No longer being ruled by the power of sin. Can you imagine that? You see, it's been said that Adam and Eve in the garden... They taught us how to foolishly pray. You see, Adam and Eve in the garden prayed, not thy will, but my will be done. But in another garden, the true and better Adam came, the true son of man. And it's there in the garden, as you can see there on that screen, back there behind us, where he got on his face and he prayed, not my will, but what church? Thine be done. There's a transformation of nature, no longer desiring our will, our kingdom, our thoughts, our desires. But God, seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, Jesus says. And everything else shall be added to you as well. And what's the result of this? Look what Paul says there at the end of verse 6. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. There's that reminder again. Sin enslaves us. It rules us. It dominates our desires. It has power over us. Sin deceives us. It deceives us emotionally in thinking that we should follow our own heart because it will never lead us astray. Sin deceives us mentally in how we view ourselves and others. But through Christ's death and resurrection, we once and for all have been set free. What does it mean to be no longer enslaved to sin? That the sin that we, you and I, once cherished, we now hate. We're like, God, please, Lord, I don't want to live this way anymore. God, I don't want to have those desires. I don't want to have those thoughts. I don't want to say those words. You see, the, the Savior that once seemed just like a good guy has now become our greatest treasure. Christ has become our truest joy. In short, To no longer be enslaved to sin means that we find satisfaction in Him and not in sin. Thus Paul can say in verses 8 through 10, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. Did you hear the tension in that text? We live in the already but not yet. Right In the sense that we have already been crucified with Christ, that's happened. But there's a sense in which Paul says we are not yet living with Him. Notice that verse, verse 8. The con- listen to the tense. Now, if we, if we have died with Christ, past tense, we believe that we will also live with Him. So again, something's happened in the past with Christ's death, but we're still awaiting the fact when we will live with God forever. We live in the middle of that tension, and thus we are fighting the power of sin now. But there will come a day because of what Christ has done for us, for all those who are in Christ will be delivered from the very presence of sin. Hallelujah. In light of this, this is what Paul says in verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin 
and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is to be our mindset. This is to be who we are, that we daily approach life dying to sin, resisting temptation. Right? As we talked about last week, our Savior showed us in Matthew 26, for the flesh is it, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is what, church? It's weak. It's weak. Therefore, humbly, right, morning by morning, we need to get up and pray, oh God, help me overcome the sin that I'm going, temptation I'm going to face today. I don't know about you, but I'm in the mornings. I'm praying for my wife. I'm praying for my children by name. I'm praying for family. I'm praying for church members. Oh, God, I don't know what they're going to face today, but give them strength. Empower them to die to sin and live to you. God, we're going to be so weak. God, help us, please. I don't know. Just like morning by morning, just that desperation of God. I'm so weak. Help us, Lord. Give us strength. Strengthen your people. You might ask, well, what's this look like again in daily life? Paul tells us in our final truth here that the resurrection offers us sin-conquering grace. The resurrection offers us not only newness of life, right? It confronted us with our sin, right? Because we see that Christ came and He died and He was raised. It confronts us. We see the offer of the newness of life as we are buried with Christ and raised with Him. We see now the offer for the resurrection of the relationship with God to be united with Christ. But now, right, we might come and wonder, well, what's this look like in daily life? How does this live itself out? And Paul answers that in our final truth. The resurrection offers us sin-conquering grace. Look what he says here, verse 12 through 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Sin desires to reign. Did you hear that? It, it desires to make you obey its passions. We're not to give the devil a foothold. We're not, right? We are be those who resist sin. We are those who fight against sin. Look what else he says. Verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. He's saying, guys, listen, there's no middle ground. Listen, either you're offering yourselves, right? I mean, you're, you're giving yourself over to sin. Don't present your members to sin. That's, either, that's one of the options. You can, you can live your life for whatever desires you have, whatever feeling, whatever makes you feel good, looks good, tastes good. If you want it, have it. You can live that way of life. Or the other is you can present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And he says your members to God as instruments for righteousness. In some way we're looking here about our acts with our bodies, right? And Paul's going to pull, pull more on that in Romans 12 about how we live and what we do with our body with one another. And man, what about in our culture? How much needs to be said about this? But this, guys, reminds us there is no middle ground. It's kind of like when you go Friday night to a football game at Dragon Stadium and Jim Frank gets on there and he says, who are you going to be what? Who are you going to be for? It's clear there's no middle ground. You're either for the Dragons or you're against them. Paul says, who are you going to be for? Who are you going to live for this day? I mean, isn't that the words of, of Joshua back in the day? Right? He's followed Moses and Moses stepped off the scene. Joshua is now coming to step off the scene. And he says to them, choose this day whom you will serve. Every day you're choosing. 
But as for me and my house, church, what are we going to do? We're going to serve the Lord. That's what Paul says. There's no middle ground. We're, we're deceived into thinking there's middle ground. There's no middle ground. So why? Why are we to war and not let sin rule over us? What is our hope? What is our confidence as we sang earlier? Look what he says, verse 14, as we close. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. You see, grace enables us to begin striving to live with God now, how we will one day live with him perfectly forever. Grace is enabling us. Grace that forgives us, right? I mean, that's, that's our hope, isn't it? I mean, none of us are standing here on how good you've been this week or how good you've lived the last five or ten years. That's sinking sand. We all come. That's why that old statement, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all come this morning. Only by the grace of God. Amen? It is His mercy and His grace. As Adam was confessing sin, I don't know about you, I was joining with him. You see what's remarkable about that time of confession? In, a, in a, an amazing way, it actually unites us. It reminds every one of us here. Whether you're the one that's striving to be the closest to Christ and you've walked with Him the longest, or maybe you find yourself feeling like the weak and the least of these in this place, the reminder is we all are in desperate need of the same Savior. We all are in need of the one who says that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And that's what Paul's saying. Listen, guys, it is what Christ has done for us. Sin has no dominion over you. Why? Because you are not under the law. It's not about how good you can be. It's about how good he's been for you. It's grace. It's the hope of the gospel. I've shared it before, but John Bunyan, his book, Pilgrim's Progress, right outside the Bible, it's the most printed book ever, right? And he just uses this allegory to describe the Christian life. And here's this man that's name is Christian, right, who represents all who will follow Christ. And he's living this life packed with his burden. He, he tries every way to get the burden off his back, trying to be good enough or trying to make it through all these situations on his own and navigate it well enough. I mean, it's do this, do that. But as the story goes on, what you begin to see is that burden on his back grows bigger and bigger and bigger. But finally, you see him walking up this hill, and he's coming to the cross, standing there. And down at the bottom of the hill is this empty tomb. And in this moment, as he stands at the cross, this burden that he can release nowhere else, this burden of sin and guilt and shame is taken off of him, and it rolls, and it goes right into the tomb. And he says these words, he hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Did you hear it? He gave it to me. I've experienced rest because he experienced no rest on the cross. I've experienced life because he experienced death. This is the hope of God in us. So I want to ask you this morning, have you truly died with Christ and been raised with him? Is your life characterized by being dead to sin and alive to God? This doesn't mean that you're never tempted, but that daily by the power of the Holy Spirit you are making war on your sin. You might ask, well, what might that look like? It's the spouse who refuses to fire back those stinging words in that moment of tension. It's the young man who turns his eyes away from the images on that screen so that he can indeed set his heart on Christ. It's the worker who won't log those hours they didn't actually work or find reasons to justify why it's okay for them to take advantage of their employer. 
None of these and a million other examples are easy. But that's why we're not doing it in our own strength, church. We're doing it through the power of Christ. That's the hope of the gospel. To the church this morning. Right? Notice what, remember we started in Hebrews, or Romans 5 and 21. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading into eternal life. This life, it's as we die with Christ and are raised with Him, right? It's transforming us. It's leading us to eternal life. I want to ask, are you seeing maybe just little by little the desire to die to sin and to live to God? Could I ask you this morning, in what ways are you longing to grow and to become more like Christ? I want to remind us in the midst of this text that our own battle with sin, we were never intended to do it Lone Ranger. That's why God gave us the church. I want to ask you, who have you shared your burdens with? Who knows you well enough to know your areas of temptation and struggle that they are truly praying for you during the week? Who knows your areas of burden and struggle and, and again, areas of temptation and sin well enough that they're able to ask you, brother, sister, how are you doing? Brothers and sisters, we are not to do this alone. We need the body of Christ. We need one another. That is part of the beauty of what God has given to us in the church. To the unbeliever this morning, I hope you've seen just as Tolkien reveals through his story, you can't escape the power of the ring on your own. Its desire is too much. It will rule you. It may feel good, as Paul said there, to continue to live in sin. It may satisfy you for a season, as sin often does. But remember this. Hear this as we close. That sin reigned in death. Listen to this. This opposite. Grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life. Listen, righteousness, the grace of God is leading us to eternal life. But sin, I want you to know this, it's leading you to hell. It's leading you to separation from God forever. The hope is, the good news is, no matter what you've done or where you've been, God's grace and mercy is more. Hear that hope today. That is why our Savior gave His life for us. It is why the the resurrection declares that God had accepted that payment. You could become a child of God. The world will tell you, go and do. Christ says, come and die. I hope and pray today that you have heard the hope of this gospel. And that by the mercy and grace of God, he's urging you forward. I need that Savior. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. It was often cried out. And Christ heard and answered. And he will with you today. Would you pray with me? Father, we pause to say thank you that you would come and die for us while we, as we studied last week, were weak and ungodly. We were not good. We were still sinners. But you demonstrated your love for us by dying for us in the midst of our sin. Thank you, God, that today sin seems to abound so often in our lives. We find ourselves foolishly doing the things we hate the things that we wish we had not done, even as long-tenured, seasoned Christians, we still all struggle. God, help us. God, thank You that Your grace and Your mercy is more. Hallelujah.
Father, we pray asking today for those who do not yet know that grace and mercy that they will see today that their sin is leading them away from you and in rebellion. And yet you and your grace and mercy have come to bring them near. Father, may they today come and die and be raised to the newness of life. Father, thank you that this would be impossible if it depended upon me. But the good news is your spirit works by the power of your word and your grace calls and ushers men and women, boys and girls into your kingdom. Father, I pray this hour through my feeble attempt that you would stretch high and wide your son. And he said that when he was lifted up, he would draw all people unto himself. Father, draw by the power and convicting Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray and the church said, Amen, amen.